so we're doing Psalms and Wisdoms, five books. Four of the books are wisdom books. Uh, Psalms um, is a book of songs, so I'm going to start with that. So Psalms, also called the Psalter, um, basically the book of Psalms, is an anthology of Israel's songs, and it's a worship song book. And I think that's really interesting that in the Bible you have um, the history of God's people, you have all of these laws, you have God speaking to his people, and then right in the middle you have a book of songs, 150 songs that Israel was to sing. And that gets to the importance of singing. Um, because why do we sing, right? Hey, join us. Um, singing is not like, we're like, oh, you know, here are some Christian truths. Let me just uh, direct you that way. Here are some Christian truths. Let's put them to song. <laughs> let's put let's put them to rhythm. Isn't that nice, right? But rather, um, singing is not ornamental, but it is central to the Christian faith, right? And why is that? Because singing, and, and Ashley's here, so I will appeal to Ashley as a singing teacher. Um, there's something about singing, right, that it engages the whole body. I remember uh, talking to Christina, and she says, you're not supposed to sing with your throat, you're supposed to sing with your body. I'm, I'm, you're not, so yes, thank you, right? So, like, you can't, like, singing, you can't sing um, in a removed, detached way, right? To really sing, it, it involves everything, who you are, right? And so I love this quote. I mean, this is why God says, okay, I want you to sing these songs. I want to engage your heart and your mind. Augustine said to sing is to pray twice. I love that, right? Because the psalms are prayers. And so we pray the psalms, but when we sing them, we sing them twice. I mean, we pray them twice because we pray with our thoughts, our minds, with the words, and then we also pray with our whole being, with our emotions. Um, so I just want to give a quick illustration. Has anyone ever seen the movie The Good Shepherd? an old, nobody remembers the movie. It's Matt Damon and Angelina Jolie were married. Right? Nobody remembers that movie. So it's like the movie that it's about the founding of the CIA. I don't remember anything about that movie. It was a totally, utterly forgettable movie. Except I remember this one scene very, very vividly. It was like near the end of the movie and it was like a very fraught scene. You know, Matt Damon, he has a son and like his family's in danger right? because he's in the CIA. He's dealing with the Russians. And then he's sitting and he's talking to his Russian counterpart and he's sitting with his boy singing in a boy's choir. And it was the very first time I ever heard O Shenandoah. And they were singing it as a boy's choir. And it was just so, it was like in the background. They didn't even let you listen to it like full on, right? It was in the background of this dialogue. And it was so beautiful that I started to weep, <laughs> right? I just started crying because it was so beautiful. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you listen to a song and it moves you, right? It profoundly moves you and, and you can't even explain it. So that's why we have the Psalms. Um, it shows us, it has this enormous emotional depth, right? Because in the Psalms you have the heights of like praise and thanksgiving. You have the depths of like the lowest depression, fear, uncertainty, anger, jealousy, um, doubt, anxiety, and and you know if we think of if we think of of this as sort of a, our norm our normal normal emotional range, right? Hey, join us. You can do that way, um, right? So if you think of this as your normal emotional range on any given year, right? What the Psalms do is the Psalms introduces you to a far wider emotional range. Emotions that you maybe never ordinarily don't encounter, right? The deepest anger, the depths of depression, um, um, incredible praise and thanksgiving to God. And so you're here normally, but as you sing the Psalms, you sing the full range. And I think it does several things. Number one, it makes you a more full human being. Because what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you experience the fullness of what it means to be human. And normally we're like, you know, retarded in our emotional depth, but we sing depression, we sing anxiety, we sing doubt, and it makes us more full, and it prepares us for when we'll experience these other emotions. Because the Psalms, not only, uh, we, not only we sing the emotions, but the Psalms teaches us and guides us how to deal with those emotions. This is the godly way to deal with them. This is how you're supposed to talk to God about them, right? And I think for a lot of us, we're scared of really strong emotions. And so we sort of suppress them, we hide them, we don't acknowledge them. 
But what the Psalms do is it forces us to experience those emotions at least one step removed, and then it teaches us how to, to deal with it. Does that make sense? So I think in that sense, this is why God gave us the book of Psalms, right? To make us more real, to make us more human. And I love Colossians 3.16. Let me have Wade read it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Wait, wait, let me stop right there. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I think all of us want that, right? We want the words of Christ to be so deeply embedded in who we are that it shapes us, it guides us, um, it directs our steps, it, it fully immerses everything we of everything who we are, right? The words of Christ. How can we have the words of Christ so deeply impressed? Keep reading. Teaching. Uh, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Stop right there. So that sounds pretty reasonable, right? Okay, so teaching. So what, right now what I'm doing, that helps you. We're supposed to admonish one another, so we need to be in community, encouraging each other, rebuking each other in love. But what else? Admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Yeah. So how do you make the word? How do you make the words of Christ dwell in you? You sing the words, right? Mm-hmm. And when you sing the words, it impresses them in your heart in a way that nothing else cannot do. This is why in worship service we sing. Why do we sing in worship service? Is it just like oh, you know, we need filler time before the sermon, right? We, it's like it's like preludes, it's like previews before the movie, right? No. You know, a lot of times I see people, they sort of strategically come late to worship service because they think of the singing time as sort of like the movie previews, right? They just want to get there just in time for the main the main deal, which is the sermon. That's a very uh, impoverished view of the worship service. Singing is essential. In some ways, it is more impactful than the sermon because the sermon you're listening, but in, in the singing, you're, 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 everything in you is responding and impounding uh, uh, into your heart, right? So, with that said, let me skip down to features of Hebrew poetry, and then I'll go to the to the other item there. Um, so, what what uh, what makes for Hebrew poetry? Let's start first with English poetry. Who who knows? Uh, you have to pull out some. Um, so, in English poetry, what are the features of English poetry? I was terrible at poetry, so don't be intimidated. Like, oh my gosh, Michael's like some sort of po- poetry nerd. I know nothing, right? So can somebody tell me? As far as I understand, there's two basic. There's really one, but there's kind of a secondary one as well. What's the features of an English poem? How do you know what you're reading an English poem? A poem. It's rhythmic. Yeah, so it's called meter, right? <clears throat> um, meter is like this, it's kind of like a rhythm. It's like a cadence. Um, usually it's the same number of beats in each line, right? So there's kind of a rhythm, what else? Is, so that's the main thing. Like, there's no, there, you, you don't have a poem unless you have meter. What's the second thing in an English poem? Rhymes. Rhymes, right. Oh, how do you spell rhyme? There we go. No? Yes. Yeah, no. <laughs> All right. Um, so th- that makes for English poetry, although you don't necessarily need rhymes, right? That's what I, I was like, whoa, just meter, okay. Hebrew poetry, neither of these two are necessary. It's debatable whether there's meter or not, but in Hebrew poetry, there's two elements, parallelism and imagery. So, uh, uh, there's a density of imagery. So, you know you're reading Hebrew poetry. By the way, like, in, of course you could tell, like, I, I printed Psalm 22, Aha! There's poetry, right? Because it's in those kind of special lines. But in the actual original text, of course, paper was extremely expensive. They would be like, why are you wasting space? So they would just push all the words together. They didn't even have spaces, right? So there was no way to tell you're reading poetry just by looking at it. Does that make sense? So how can you tell? There's a hyperdensity of imagery, right? Lots of images, and we'll see that in this example poem. And then uh, the the second example is parallelism. So every time you read Hebrew poetry, there's some there's something called a couplet. So there's a line a, and then there's a sub one, and there's always an indent. And that's how the translators are letting you know 
this is a couplet. The indent isn't in the text, by the way. Because why? They don't, they don't, they're like, what do you, why is there white space? You're wasting it, right? So uh, the, the, the indent means that these two are in relationship with one another. And the feature of parallelism is that this, uh, a statement is made here, and then there's a relationship between this statement and this statement. Sometimes it's saying the same thing, just in a different way. Sometimes it's contrasted, they're saying the opposite thing. Sometimes they're saying this, but all the more this. Sometimes they're giving examples. This, let me give you a principle of this. And therefore, okay, this is this is the brilliance of Hebrew poetry. They don't tell you the relationship. So when you're reading Hebrew parallelism, what do you have to do? You have to figure it out. And imagery, how does imagery work? You don't just say, oh, here's an image. You have to think through, what does the image mean? And therefore, Hebrew poetry has enormous amount of information packed into it, hyper-dense, and therefore you can't read Hebrew poetry really fast. I think, like, for me, discovering this was very, very helpful because I like to read really fast because I like to feel really productive. I like to read where, like, the pages are, like, creating a breeze in my face, right? <laughs> um, but you cannot read Hebrew poetry like that. You have to read Hebrew poetry extremely slowly, extremely thoughtfully. Why? Because you're, you're, you're considering the parallelisms. You're considering the imagery. It's very, very thoughtful, very, very slow reading. Does that make sense? Um, if you guys look at verse 15, Psalm 22, other side column, you'll notice that there's two indents, so that's a triplet. So the, all three lines are in connection to one another. We'll talk about that. All right, so any questions about Hebrew poetry? All right, let's move on. Um, Psalms. Okay, how do we read the Psalms? So there are basically four levels. If you go to Psalm 22, you see there in the in the um, all caps, to the choir master according to the doe of the dawn. So that's probably a tune. We have no idea what the doe of the dawn is anymore. A Psalm of David, right? So this is basically written by David. So that's the first level, right? You say, okay, David wrote the Psalm. So you read it from David's perspective. You try to understand David's historical context. And then you realize that this psalm was put in Israel's songbook. So Israel is singing it. And how does Israel singing it? Israel applies David's situation as an individual corporately to themselves. Right? And then, the next context is Jesus. Jesus sang the psalms. He's an Orthodox Jew. He was singing the psalms all the time. In fact, let me just skip to the second line. Mark 14, 26 that's basically um, at the Last Supper. All three of the Synoptic Gospels talk about this. They that Jesus and his disciples, after the Last Supper, they sang psalms together, and that's supposed to be an indicator that this this happened all the time. That Jesus and his disciples, wherever they went, they were singing psalms. Right? This is Jesus' songs. And if you guys remember, um, on the cross, Jesus quotes only two Old Testament passages, and they're both psalms. And I want you guys to think about the importance or significance of that because when you're on the cross, you're an extremist, right? You're at the, you, you, you are pressed. You are suffering. You're in torture. You don't have time to say, what Old Testament passage applies to this situation? Let me think now. No. It's, it's whatever's instinctual, whatever's like from your gut. That's what, like, that's what you say. That means that the Psalms were so deep in Jesus. That in, in that moment, that's what came out instinctually. Psalm 22, Psalm 31, right? So Jesus sang the Psalms. We, in fact, we cannot understand the cross without the Psalms. And then finally, we as the church sing the Psalms. And when we sing them, we think about all the levels. We think about David. We think about Israel singing them. We think about Jesus singing them. And then we apply to us. This is us singing them as well. So... Let's go to Psalm 22. Let's let's first go to verse 12 and 13, which is uh, the column on the right side, the top, because I want to like sort of work through these two principles, okay? So, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. So, let's first consider parallelism, right? So if you look at verse 12, it says, many bulls encompass me. Um, so let me explain the context <laughs> before we just jump into it. So what is Psalm 22 about? Psalm 22 is talking about David's experience of being under siege, of being surrounded by enemies. Right? He feels attacked. He's under accusations. In fact, he says they're false accusations. He's an innocent sufferer. Everyone is around him. They want to kill him. They want to do him in. 
and he's describing that experience. And he says, they're like bulls encompassing me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. So Bashan, you need to know a little bit of historical context. If you read the notes of any good study Bible, I'll tell you. Bashan is apparently some really fertile valley in Israel. So what is that saying? Not just any bulls, but the meanest, toughest, strongest, well-fed bulls. Right? It's not these scrawny little bulls. It's like the bulls that attacked the matadors in Spain. These are like killer bulls, right? So, so what, what, what's the relationship? Bull surrounding me, enormous strong bulls. Does that make sense? And then the next line, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. So they're opening their, their mouths at David. What does that mean exactly? They're doing it like a, like a lion. And how does a lion do it? Lion wants, has only one thought. He wants to eat you. He wants to kill you. Does that make sense? So that's how you're supposed to work through parallelism. And then I already kind of gave you imagery, right? You're supposed to think through the, the images. So let's just read through it. Can I have uh, David read um, 1 through 8? Oh, by the way, you'll notice that I skip a whole bunch of verses because Psalm 22 is really long. So for the second time, I just okay, skip okay, it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the word of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry, cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, I, by, and by night I find no rest. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. They, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Right, and then let's go down to verse 14. Jeff, can you read that, please? 14? Yeah. I am poured out like water, and my, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Continue. Yeah, keep going, sorry. My strength is dried up like a pot's pot shard. Pot shard. And my tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Yeah, so I let's, I just want to pause at verse 14 and 15. I think it's so descriptive. Notice the hyperdensity of imagery, right? Let's just go down to verse... Well, let me just explain verse 14. I'm poured out like water, right? Like, all my life is just, like, ebbing out of me. My bones are out of joint. It's like that experience where, like, you're being drawn and quartered, right? All your bones are, are, are out of joint. His heart is like wax. Like, he's just melting inside. And in verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot shard. By the way, what's a pot shard? Who is brave? Who is saved? What does it sound like? Shards apart. What? Yes! Right, so there's a piece of pottery, and then you smash it on the ground, and the little pieces are pot shards. Right? So, what is he saying? My strength is dried up like a pot shard. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. So, what, what does this imagery evoke for you? I feel like an English teacher. <laughs> <laughs> what are you thinking about? Desperation. Yeah. Right? Like, a piece of potter's whole. Right? Useful. Good. But a pot shard, that's good for nothing. <laughs> uh, I used to be in high school pottery class. Once you break a piece of pottery, that's it. It's not like you can... You can glue it together, but it's not advisable, right? Um, um, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. What, 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 what kind of situation would that be? Yeah, extreme thirst, right? So your mouth is dry, your tongue sticks, right? You lay me in the dust of death. Um, the only way you can read the Psalms is you gotta like imagine the imagery and you gotta feel it. Have you guys ever felt like this? Where you're surrounded by enemies, they wanna kill you, they hate you, they, they throw accusations at you, they're plotting to destroy you. And you feel like you're dying. And and if you know, if you don't know how that feels, this shows you, this teaches you. And as you're singing, you're supposed to say, oh, that's how David felt. But then ultimately, you're supposed to realize that's how Jesus felt. Because Jesus sang this from the cross, right? Let me keep reading. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots, right? This is Jesus on the cross. 
And then finally, it teaches us how we can deal with these emotions. Verse 19, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. When you feel like you're under siege, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to cry out to God. God is your strength. God is your shield, right? All right. So that's the Psalms. Any questions about the Psalms? I spent a, half the class on Psalms, but I think it's proportionally correct. All right, wisdom. Oh, wisdom is exciting. All right. <laughs> um, the wisdom literature. Okay, so what is wisdom? I think in the Western world, we think of wisdom as what? Like someone with a lot of experience, someone who knows what to do in, in certain situations, right? Sort of, sort of skillful living. But biblical definition of wisdom is something far deeper, greater than that. The way it, the wisdom would be defined is it's the skill and the art of godly living. So it's to live before God, right? It's not just <coughs> having smarts, it's not just having experience, but it's be, being before God. It's largely ahistorical, which is really interesting. Even some of the situations like Job, who is a historical person, we have no idea when he lived. We have no idea who he was uh, contemporary with. We think he's somewhat a contemporary of Abraham, but that's only based just on the language, right? But there's no historical markers in the wisdom literature, which is for, um, which means that it applies to all times and all places, right? Um, it's dealing, second bullet point, it's dealing with the deep questions of life. So they have, it has a philosophical orientation. And this is the thesis statement of all the wisdom literature. Psalm 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What does that tell us? So what is the fear of the Lord? So we think, oh, fear means, oh, coward. Ah, I'm scared. No, fear is deep reverence and awe. And it means to, to be before something that's so amazing and so high and so great that you feel small and you acknowledge the greatness of what you're before. And uh, John Piper has really helped me a lot. He said, like, it's, it's, imagine you're standing before a hurricane, and you're afraid of the hurricane, but you're also in awe. You're amazed at the hurricane. That's what it means to be in fear of God, right? Um, and, and what does that tell us? It means that wisdom, first and foremost, is being under God, because another place the Proverbs says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So that is... That is wisdom. Wisdom is to know God, to fear Him, to know that He is God, and you are way not, right? Um, wisdom is multidimensional, and truths are held in tension. Okay, so we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but let me just graphically show it, because this is actually very important. Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, these three, they're like in, in, a, in a tension relationship. Because each of them feels very different. We'll get to that later, okay? So th- just hold that in mind. Wisdom is multidimensional. Truths are held in tension. And then finally, wisdom is ultimately a person. Um, wisdom is not a list of do's and don'ts. Wisdom is not like self-help literature. Wisdom is not like, here's how to be successful, make friends, you know, climb in your career, right? Because... Think about like the typical example of, of American wisdom. Ben Franklin, right? Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man happy, wealthy, and wise. Makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Or a penny saved is a penny earned. Penny earned. Oh, you guys have memorized Ben Franklin's wisdom. <laughs> what does all that wisdom tell you to? It's all about self-aggrandizement, self-climbing, self-growth, right? It's essentially how to be a successful, smarter, better person. Um, but that's not biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is all about orienting your life towards God. It's living this beautiful life of holiness and, and humility before God. And ultimately, we're supposed to understand that we fail. So wisdom sets a bar that is so impossibly high that you cannot reach it. And therefore, ultimately, wisdom is a person. It's God who's come down. And there's all throughout the New Testament, it continually says that um, Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. Right? Jesus crucified a fact. And I'm sure Wade will talk about that today in the sermon. Um, so let me just dive into Proverbs. Um, Proverbs, the, uh, the whole thesis statement of Proverbs is that there's two ways to live, wisdom and folly. What is folly? To say there is no God is to live a godless life. And uh, chapters 1 through 9 is personified by these two women, right? So... So there's two women. <laughs> Excuse me if my drawing is insulting. 
Um, okay. So there's two there's two women, wisdom and folly. And it's instructions from a father to a son. And he's saying, love Lady Wisdom, avoid uh, Lady Folly. Lady Folly is an adulteress. She's like a prostitute. She's like making these lewd comments, lewd, you know, she's like raising her eyebrows, giving you a come-hither look. And you, as a young man, are to avoid her and to come to her, Lady Wisdom, right? And why do you think that Wisdom is personified as two women? Um, the reason is because Wisdom isn't just these abstract principles, rules to live by, but they're ultima- it's ultimately about a deep, intimate relationship. That Because Wisdom is about knowing God and loving God. And then ultimately, who is Lady Wisdom? It's Jesus. You're supposed to love Jesus. You're supposed to be in relationship with Him, right? So that's the first bullet point. Second bullet point, um, <clears throat> huge theme in Proverbs is the limits of human knowledge. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Foundational to wisdom is doubting yourself and distrusting yourself and realizing the limits of, of your ability to understand things. And then and then the third bullet point on complexity and paradox. So you can't read, even Proverbs, you can't read Proverbs as these single sort of maxims. Right, but they're all sort of in tension with each other. So let me just give you an example about wealth. Proverbs thirteen twenty three: the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. What is that say- saying to us? It's saying that the poor are poor because why? Why are the poor poor? Injustice, which means is it their fault? No. Okay, well let's read on. Proverbs twenty three twenty 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 one. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. What is that saying? It's their fault. Wait a minute. Is poverty their fault, or is it a matter of injustice? And the answer is, it's both, it's paradox, it's complex. There is no simple answers. So if you come to Proverbs, if you come to the wisdom literature looking for easy answers, you're not going to find it. Right? It is incredibly deep. It is incredibly complex. Right? That's why you keep going back to this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. To some degree, if you think you are wise, you are a fool. If you think you understand, you don't. Right? That's that's wisdom. All right. So let's go on to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 uh, is the last proverb. Um, I remember as a child... Not as a child. That's, that would be weird. I remember as a teenager and as a young man in college, um, like we would always like love Proverbs thirty-one because Proverbs thirty-one is about the ideal woman, right? She's multi-talented. She's you know um, she has boundless energy. She's deeply godly. She's super capable. She's super strong. She's economic. She's wise. And I remember being told that's who you're supposed to marry. And I think that um, um, uh, that is a very shallow, moralistic way of reading Proverbs. Because, again, right, it's not maxims or it's not truths to live by, but it's an impossibly high ideal. And if you say, like, it's an impossible burden to women, because women read Proverbs 31 and they're, like, depressed. (laughs) Men read Proverbs 31 and they're like, there is no such woman. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So then who is Proverbs 31 talking about? David. Yes. Jesus. Yes. This is about Jesus. He is woman. He is a, a, a wisdom personified. He is the ultimate wise one who lives before God, who fears God, who is obedient. I think it's amazing that the Bible, like you know, people, uh, a lot of people get angry about um, uh, gender depictions and so forth. The Bible gives female representations of Jesus all throughout. Jesus says, I'm the mother hen. He he likens himself to a mother bird. He says, I am wisdom, lady wisdom, right? So he's, you know. um, But so so the point is, Proverbs 31 is ultimately about Jesus. And then only secondarily is it a guide to women, right? So women should say, this is what I aspire to live for. And it's a guide to men. Look for a woman of character, right? Look for a woman of, of, because, and we'll read it. What do men look for in women generally? Huh? 
Beauty. Beauty, yes, good looks. You'll notice, no, it doesn't say, she has, you know, long, silky hair, her figure is amazing, you know, her, her face is, like, symmetrical, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, it talks about her character, it talks about um, um, who she is, right? Um, so, let's, let's read it at lightning speed, I will read it at lightning speed for you guys. Um, an excellent wife, who can find? She is more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. That's so amazing, right? She's like just this incredibly economically capable person. She rises while it is yet dark and provides food for her family and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. She's, she's like business savvy, right? With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. If you read the commentaries, this is militaristic language, right? She's like a tough, strong woman, right? She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She, she wakes up before dawn. She stays up late at night. Um, she puts her hand to the distaff. Her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches her hands out, out, out her hands to the needy. She's a woman who deeply, passionately loves social justice, right? She's not afraid of snow for her household. For all her household is clothed in scarlet, right? That's extremely expensive cloth. She makes bed carvings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates. When he sits among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come, meaning she's not afraid of the future. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She's a fantastic teacher. Her children are well-behaved. She teaches them the gospel. She looks well to the ways of her her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She's never lazy. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Right? She's a deeply godly woman. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This is Jesus. There is no such woman. May I say there is no such man who even comes close to this description. This is about Jesus. And this is ultimately saying when you love Jesus like this, right? he will love you, he will care for you. He's, he's, he's the most excellent um, ultimate spouse. All right. So let's go to Job. So here's the story of Job. What happens is Job is this very godly man, but he's also very wealthy. He has ten kids, seven sons, three three daughters. That's supposedly the ideal family um, for an Israelite. And he's in fantastic wealthy. But then Satan comes to God in heaven. He says, you know what? That servant of yours, Job, he praises you, he loves you, but only because he's rich. Only because he's doing well in life. I bet... If all those things were taken away, he would curse you. And God says, go ahead. I permit you to do that. He will still praise me. So, um, in one fell swoop, all of his wealth is destroyed. All of his children are killed. But what does Job do? Job says, uh, uh, naked I came into my mother's room. Naked I will return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Satan goes back to God and he says, yeah, but we haven't touched his body. I bet if he's riddled with disease... If his bones ache, then he'll curse you. God says, okay, you can do that too. And then that's the end of chapter 2. And then you see Job sitting on an ash heap with a pot shard, scraping his boils. And he's absolutely devastated and miserable. And then his three friends come along, and they engage in a conversation with him. And that goes on for like, uh, like 38 chapters. And that is what Job is all about. Job is about suffering, right? Um, and so it's asking the big questions. What is the meaning of suffering? Why does it happen? Did I do something to bring it to myself? And where is God in all of this? And Job is in tension with Proverbs. Because again and again, Proverbs says, the righteous will prosper, the wicked will perish. And yet here is Job. He's perishing. He's not prospering. And his three friends come to him and say, you know why you're suffering? It's because you sinned. You obviously did something dastardly evil. Confess. Fess up. What did you do? And Job continually protests. No, I didn't. I lived a righteous life, relatively speaking. I, 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 I did nothing wrong. So then why am I suffering? 
right? So his three friends keep evoking what's called retribution theology. You suffer, you sin, you suffer, and they provide poor, poor comfort to him. But he's basically saying, why am I suffering? And I think anytime we suffer, that's the question we're asking. Why am I suffering? Like, if you do something really evil, like, let's say you're married, you commit adultery, and then divorce, and then what happens is divorce, and then you're depressed, you can't say, why is this happening? You can say, oh yes, it's connected to this evil thing that I did. But so often, disaster, suffering comes on us, and we're like, why? That's the question Job is asking, right? And it's a very deep question. And ultimately, Jesus is the ultimate innocent sufferer. Because the whole time, Job is saying, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. Why is this suffering happening to me? But Job, in the end, is not truly innocent. He is a sinner, like every human being. And Jesus is the only truly innocent one who did, in fact, suffer without cause. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And therefore, what does this tell us? It tells us, that God is not distant in our suffering, that he became a human being and walked in suffering with us, right? And so let's just read two passages in Job. In Job 38, uh, this is at the very end, Job is full of complaints. The whole time he's grousing, he's demanding an audience with God. He says, if God were standing before me right now, I would question him. I would say, God, why did you, Why are you making me suffer? I, I was your good servant. I obeyed you. I, I was faithful to you all the time. In fact, if you read through Job, the, the, the list that he cites of his righteousness is astonishing because he loves social justice. He says, there, uh, nobody in my vicinity is poor because I shared my wealth with them. I cared for the weak. I cared for the widow. You know, he's, he's a righteous man. He says, I want, I want an audience with God. And God says, okay. Let me ask, before you ask me something, let me ask you something. Verse one. Um, well, let's have, uh, Sarah, can I have you read it? Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is it that darkness counsels by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Yeah, so he's, so God says, All right, you want an audience with me? Ask, Answer these questions. Verse 4. Sarah. Continue? Yeah. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its faces sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Alright, so. This is a very interesting response. Because Job is saying, why am I suffering? Now God could have said, well, see, it wasn't me, it was Satan. (laughs) Satan wanted to see if your integrity was true. Notice no mention of Satan. No mention of any explanation. Instead, what does God say? God says, Job, I'm God, you're not God. Right? Were you there at the creation of the universe? No. That's all God says, by the way. He just goes on and on and on. I'm God, you're not God. And then Job says, thank you. That's just what I needed. Because look, read verse uh, Job 42, Rachel. I'm sorry, Ashley, sorry. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and dust. Yeah. Job is tremendously helped by this. It's very strange to us because Job gets no explanation. Job gets no, you know, like, no background information is given to him. All God says is, Job, you've forgotten that I'm God and you're not God. And Job says, that's just what I needed. Because Job's foundational problem is that he assumes that he can understand. That he's putting God in the dock. It's really interesting because right now Judah, like there's such an enormous cognitive gap between me and Judah or, you know, Christina and Judah. The other day, I was really funny. Christina was trying to explain to Judah indirect causation, right? Because, like, right now, Judah says things like, you know, God built this house. God gave me this food. And Christina's trying to explain, okay, yes, but God did it through me, right? You know? And so she's trying to say, okay, I can give uh, Noah this crayon, but now I'm going to give it to you, Judah, and you give it to Noah. And then, But I'm giving it to Noah, right? 
I'm probably explaining it terribly too. But um, <laughs> but she's like, do you understand the difference? And Judah's like, he doesn't get it. It's like so beyond him, right? And the gap between uh, Christina and Judah is nothing compared to the gap between us and God. And so what is God saying? God is saying, could you even understand if I were to explain this to you? Because basically what you want is you want to be God. You want to sit in judgment over me. You want to you, you want to be the judge. You are not qualified to be the judge. You cannot even begin to understand it. Not just cognitively, but in terms of your, your, your sinfulness. And then ultimately, Job says, that's exactly what I need. Because why? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Right? Um, 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 uh, what was it? Uh, uh, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. That's the thesis of wisdom. Alright, so... Any questions about Job? All right, let's go on to Ecclesiastes. I love Ecclesiastes. All right. Ecclesiastes, if you read Ecclesiastes, it's a really scandalous book because it says stuff like life is meaningless, right? Life sucks. There's no point to anything. What's the use? That's basically what Ecclesiastes is saying all the, almost all throughout and what's going on, it's basically exploring what life would look like without God. Assume there's no God, now what? If there's no God, then, then nothing matters. Everything is pointless, right? And the way I kind of think of it is, is that, you know, if Proverbs, he's like the eager beaver kid who sits in front of the class. He's like, oh, I know the answer. I know. The righteous will prosper. The <laughs> wicked will perish. Oh, you know, he's so eager. He's dressed so nice. Ecclesiastes is the cool kid smoking in the back of the room saying, this life is stupid, life sucks, right? And Job is like this poor kid, <laughs> you know, his family is, is going through famine, disaster struck, he's like riddled with pimples and he's crying, right, in the corner of the classroom. <laughs> That's kind of the way. And so, which is the truth? And the answer is, they're all true in, co- in, commu- in a dialogue, in connection, in tension with each other. Does that make sense? So the straightforward life of Proverbs has to be softened, mitigated, um, in dialogue with the skepticism of Ecclesiastes and the suffering of Job. Because what Ecclesiastes basically says is, yeah, the righteous prosper, the wicked perish, but not always. There are cruel exceptions to this. So that the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. Right? That's true. So that's basically what Ecclesiastes um, is getting at. Life is not straightforward. The Proverbs are not promises. And basically, it's pointing out the gap between reality as we experience it and the promises of the Bible. Right? Trust in the Lord. He will make your path straight. Right? The godly man prospers in everything that he does. But these promises don't seem to come true often because there's this enormous gap. And Ecclesiastes and Job is filling in this gap. Does that make sense? Um, and therefore, it's longing for the final redemption of the world um, because in the end, when is this gap going to be resolved and, and, and um, uh, realized? Or when is, when is this going to be realized? The gap will collapse when Christ comes again and establishes a new creation. Okay? So, um, Ecclesiastes 1... Um, let me have uh, Christine read, and I'll stop you. Well, probably you can read the whole thing. Go ahead. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Yeah, I mean, literally, it's vapor. The word vanity is just, it's just nothingness. Everything is just meaningless, nothing, pointless. Right? Keep going. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Yeah, so what is he saying? He's saying life is just motion without meaning. There's no progress. There's no real movement. Keep going. Verse 8. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot better it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Yeah, there's this weariness. He's bored. He's tired of life. 
Keep going. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Yeah, no, he says nothing will last, nothing will be remembered, and in the end, everything is meaningless. And I think Ecclesiastes is a wonderful book because sometimes you feel like Ecclesiastes, maybe when you're a teen in high school, but a lot of times you feel like Proverbs, right? Like, oh, the Lord is blessing me. My my arm is strong. I, I love him and, and success is coming on in my way. Ecclesiastes is a wonderful corrective because it reminds you that is not always the case in this life. And it reminds you that suffering doesn't mean that, that God is angry with you. But sometimes we don't understand why suffering happens. And suffering reminds us that this world is broken. Right? This is why it's incredibly helpful to read Ecclesiastes. Um, and and uh, so we'll move on to Song of Solomon. Um, exciting. I didn't want to skip this. Right? It's erotic love poetry. Because um, Christianity has the reputation of what? Being really dour on sex. Ooh, sex is bad. Why would you... Would you don't be excited about sex, right? Sex is only for children. Um, but... <laughs> um, but in, in Song of Solomon, you see this incredible celebration of just the incredible happiness and joy of sex, of marital sex, right? And it takes us back to Eden when the man and the woman were both naked and they felt no shame. And here's the thesis line. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. It's this husband and, and his wife and they're just ravished by the beauty of each other. They're enjoying uh, uh, physical intimacy and, and ultimately it's a picture of, well, first of all, it's telling us that sex is a wonderful gift from God. It should be enjoyed. But it also tells us it's a picture ultimately of Jesus and the church, right? Ephesians 5, right? This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and his church, right? This is ultimately Christ is our bridegroom. We are his bride. He is ravished by our beauty, not because we are truly beautiful in of ourselves, but because he makes us beautiful, right? Um, but I just wanted to show you uh, the uh, Song of Solomon is basically, if you truly understand, if you read it with a commentary, you will read it blushing because it is so explicit. And so we'll have fun, right? So Song of Solomon, uh, uh, who will I make blush? I'll make Andrew blush. <laughs> Verse 6, remember, this is poetry, so you cannot read it from a distance. You must read it with relish, passion. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruits. Oh, may your breast be like clusters on the, of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Yeah, so here's my rendition of a palm tree, right? <laughs> so here's the imagery, and his wife's breasts are like the, 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 the coconuts, or I don't know, the, the clusters of the palm tree, and he says, I will climb the palm tree, and I will lay hold of its fruit, Right? And he's just delighting in his wife, you know? Um, um, there's just his bare face, no shame, no embarrassment, right? Total delight in marital sex. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Who, who will I embarrass next? Fion, you are next. <laughs> Open to me, my sister, my love, my dog, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with, drops, with the drops of the night. I put off my garment, how could I put it on? So this is the woman speaking, verse 3, keep going. I put off my garment, how could I put it on? Okay, so let's be a little more explicit. What's going on? What's she doing? Why you gotta whisper? (laughs) 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 Right, so she's... Naked. She's getting naked, exactly, all right? Because don't be mistaken, kids. She's getting naked, and then what's going on? Right, because you know what? The foot is like the dirtiest part of you, especially in the Middle East, because you're wearing sandals. So she's making herself super presentable, right? And then go on. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was filled within me. I arose open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh. My fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bowl. Okay, so she says, I have a latch, like a door, and he's, he wants to come in, and he's talking about the handles of the bowl. What is this latch? What is this door that she's talking about? 
this is where I give you permission to think, you know, the most immature thought, which would be what? All the commentators agree on this point. <laughs> okay, yes, but what, 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 when she says, my beloved put his hand on to the latch, right, and all the way down the handles of the bolt, so there's this door, this latch. What is the door? <laughs> what is the latch? What is the door? Huh? You have no idea. You're too innocent. Okay. <laughs> David. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I was, I was telling you about Because this is the commentary. Listen, shh. This is biblical literature. If you feel queasy, that means you don't have as high a view, a godly view of sex as the Bible. Because to the degree that you feel discomfort means the Bible's trying to teach you. You're supposed to delight, right? you married men. You're supposed to delight in this. She's talking about her vagina. Okay, that's what all the commentaries say. And listen to me, okay, look. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I rose to open to my beloved, okay, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. She's talking about, right, a moistness, a wetness. She's aroused. Do you guys understand? She's aroused. And where it says in verse 4, my beloved put his hand to the latch, this is a euphemism for his penis. So this is talking about coitus. I never thought I would get to say coitus in church. Okay, but this is talking about sexual embrace, um, the sex act. And this is a barefaced rejoicing in that. And therefore, no one can say Christianity is down on sex. Right? Christianity has the highest view of sex there is. That um, in marital sex is deep joy, deep satisfaction. And so, here I throw out a challenge to all the married couples. Read Song of Solomon together. Right? Because that's the secondary meaning. The first meaning, the highest meaning, is this is Christ loving us, treasuring us. But the secondary meaning is this is the way you're supposed to be with your spouse. Does that make sense? All right. Any, one question. I'll, 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 because time's over. But any questions? Not just on Song of Solomon, but everything. All right, let me pray. Heavenly Father, it is almost, um, <laughs> almost uh, uh, ridiculous to cover these five books in such short a time. But I pray that it would be like wetting our toe, it would be wetting our appetite, and we would desire for the full feast. I pray that this class would launch us and move us towards really enjoying your word, loving your word, um, and we have much to learn. Help us to be like humble students, uh, uh, to be instructed and taught. Help us to remember that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.